Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Creation.com Talk. Uh, my name is Keaton Halley. I'm Robert Carter. And today we're going to be talking about genetic entropy and answering objections to that whole idea. So um, that term might not be familiar to a lot of people, genetic entropy. It's kind of a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, we're going to explain what it means. Why don't we just begin by breaking it down, though? Rob, do you want to tell us what entropy, entropy. itself is? There is this thing in science called the second law of thermodynamics, which is another mouthful. <laughs> right. Most people are familiar with it. It's just the idea that over time, complex things fall apart. Systems wind down, they lose energy, they break. Yeah. And it happens in a measurable way, right? So it's it absolutely like a, happens in a measurable way. You're yeah. just sort of saying it in a colloquial sense that like things go from order to disorder. They, they tend that way. Yeah. And it, it was originally framed as something in chemistry. Hmm. All chemical reactions go from higher order to lower order. Mm -hmm. They lose energy and the energy goes out into the atmosphere, out into space or whatever, and just warms things up. Yeah. So heat goes from concentrated to diffuse. And That's, in practical terms, it, it, it means, you know, things that are ordered, like you might think of a sandcastle would be something that would require somebody to, to build it up. Natural processes aren't going to turn a pile of sand into a sandcastle. They, they go the other direction. They turn the sandcastle into a pile of sand. Yes. And that's something really interesting about the second law. It can apply to any system. It can apply to information. It can apply to structures. And, or it can just apply to a chemical reaction in a test tube. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the question is, does it apply to DNA inside a cell? Right. That's the question. Yeah. So this term genetic entropy then um, is a way of applying it. Is, is that a term like that's, did creationists make this up or is that something that evolutionists have talked about? I think Dr. John Sanford is the one who actually came up with the term. Mm -hmm. I can't say it was never used or ideas like that weren't used before him, but his brainchild is that genetic systems, the information in the cell falls apart over time because of random mutation. Yeah. I think sort of the idea maybe was floating around, but he really developed it and helped to get a lot of the yeah. specifics down. In and he, he wrote a book called Genetic Entropy. He wrote right? a book. And then he followed that up with decades of computer experiments. Mm -hmm. And he and I have worked together on this for a number of years, other colleagues also. And we also have uh, published scientific papers on genetic accumulation studies in real organisms. So it's we've we've covered all our bases here. It's yeah. a real thing and it really does look like it's true. All right, but let's break it down for a lay audience a bit. So okay. just sort of in simple terms, can you say wh what is this thing we call genetic entropy? Genetic entropy is a very simple thought, and that is that the information content of the cell breaks down over time because of nature. Yeah, and it will do so in a, in a species, like in the whole population. Yes, right? yeah, so um, over time, not only does an individual accumulate more mutations the older they get and eventually they're going to die of something caused by you know cancer or something like that but populations also because those mutations that occur in the individual are inherited by the next generation and natural selection can't remove them because natural selection isn't powerful enough to see them yeah so and most of these mutations they're they're harmful they degrade the genome of an organism over time but yeah. also in the in the whole species it will naturally head toward extinction so it's sort of that's why it's a genetic entropy right it's yeah. going in this from order to disorder in the same way that physical systems do. Yeah, and this is a direct challenge to the Darwinian worldview, the Darwinian model, because for them, natural living things, they have to escape the process of entropy. So everyone acknowledges that entropy does apply to living systems, mm -hmm. but you know, natural selection over time can override the de de degradation of the information and get species to improve. And so it's an open question. That's, that's the theory, right? Well, that, that's yeah. their theory. That was Darwin's right. theory, near-Darwinian synthesis. 
These ideas are that life can overcome the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah. One thing they like to say is, well, living things, they take energy from the environment and they use that to make more complicated structures. So they're able to overcome the second law. That's a really yeah, fun... Again, that's, that's their argument. That's not our view, but... It's uh, not our view. But, you know, even if it were, that's only going to bring glory to God because life does do that. We, we are not spontaneously combusting into a ball of fire like all of our molecules want to do because our bodies are designed to harness all that energy and do useful things with it. And that's a design argument because yeah. you don't see that in chemistry. Okay. All things yeah. in chemistry, the second law applies, entropy applies, but in biology, it doesn't. Right. Yeah. So I think what you're saying, you, you tell me if this is right. Like this is kind of back to an, an older argument between creationists and evolutionists where uh, many creationists would say things like, well, evolution is impossible because the second law of thermodynamics is true. And that means things deteriorate instead of building up organisms over time. That, that, that's a bit oversimplified and we wouldn't necessarily use that argument in its bare bones yeah. because ev the evolutionary response is, well, hang on, it, the second law only applies to closed systems. And when you add energy from outside the system, you can have, just by natural processes alone, things becoming more ordered. In, in the local sense, yes. Now, yeah. we radiate heat. That heat is a disorder. But our bodies are taking creating order and at the expense of the second law says we're going to radiate all that heat away. That's a disorder. So on a local sense, you can have higher order, but in a general sense, you always go towards disorder. Yeah, right. So, so, so I know that even these local, you know, they're not exceptions to the second law, but they're local increases of order, but it's only because you have a greater decrease in order elsewhere to balance it out. Exactly. Yeah. So, exactly. and life, life is one of those things that when a plant grows up from a seed or something, you know, it's, it's overcoming the second law in that local environment because of the energy it receives from the outside. But the question is, is that mere energy sufficient? Yes. Is it sustainable in the long term? That's mm -hmm. where the evolutionary yeah. question comes in. So we know that life does that. Great. Can it withstand the winnowing and withering effects of mutations over thousands of years? Yeah. So you really have to look at the details and not just say, oh, there's energy from outside. Therefore, you know, this genetic entropy isn't a problem. When you look at the details of the way mutations accumulate and how natural selection operates, natural selection is not only can it not evolve new complex systems um, yeah. that are sophisticated, but it can't even overcome the, the degradation. Yeah. Once you have living things existing, life can persist, but you can't get them to that high ordered state from random chemicals. That's a huge problem for them. Okay. So tell us why not. Why can't, why isn't natural selection enough to overcome this problem of genetic entropy? It's because natural selection is blind to most mutations. For natural selection to act upon a mutation, it has to have a significant effect. It has to affect the ability of the organism to procreate. Or natural selection will just totally ignore it. But like, imagine that you had a, um, let's say a high school biology textbook. And you have to study that textbook. And at the end of the year, take an exam based on a textbook. Okay. okay, but next year's class, they don't use these textbooks. They're using going to use a hand copied version of the textbook. So your textbook, you have to write out a copy, throw away yours and hand your copy to the next student. Mm -hmm. How long will it be till no one in that class can possibly pass the final exam? I don't know, five or 10 years. Because you're saying in this analogy, basically, you're, the people who copy it make... They will make little mistakes, little mistakes yeah. but the little mistake is completely irrelevant. One spelling error means nothing. Yeah. 
You can you still, still get pass. The, the majority of the information of the textbook yeah. is copied faithfully. And so yeah. the, the next generation And you generation can still pass the exam. It. And then you can still pass the exam. Yeah. And, and yet, eventually, there'll be so many mistakes, you're going to fail. And there's nothing you can do because you can't fix the mistakes. You don't know what a mistake is and what's not. You don't know what the, how that word is spelled or not spelled because you've never seen it before. Right. And yeah, that's so in the same the way, argument for information. I know, you know, in John Sanford's book, he talks about how the vast majority of mutations are what are called near neutrals. Yes. That they're, that's what I'm getting. They're at. not perfectly neutral in the sense that they, they don't have any effect on the organism and its, and its fitness, its ability to pass on its DNA, but they're, they're just slightly harmful. So the effect is almost invisible to natural selection. Yeah. But it's harmful enough that you accumulate a whole bunch of these over time, then it's going to have a devastating effect on the species. And, and that, is, that is the whole idea. Individual mistakes are almost irrelevant, but cumulatively, they're deadly. That is actually straight out of standard evolutionary population genetics. That's neutral evolutionary theory in a nutshell. There's all these things that this isn't something made up. This is actually trolling the evolutionary literature and putting all these ideas together and say, wait a minute. Yeah. This is what they're saying. What they're saying is that it's actually impossible for life to persist. Yeah. And, and I think I like the analogy you gave in our documentary, Evolution's Achilles Heels, where you said, imagine a room full of people that all have these mutations, that new mutations that they've, some of them been handed down from their parents, the, the former generation, but then they have some new mutations as well, about 100 uh, the, the, per child. Yes. Yeah. Is, it, that's the estimate that even secular well, scientists get. And that's bearing even modern. Very recent genetic studies are showing mm -hmm. about 100 mutations per child, yeah. 100 spelling errors. And so with this group of people that they're all mutants in some way or another, even if we have natural selection applied where we remove the, 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 some of the people who have the very worst mutations, yeah. well, everybody that's left still has more it's mutations mutant. than the generation before. And so yeah. each generation becomes more and more mutant. That is going to lead to extinction. There's yeah. nothing natural selection can do, even with very efficient extreme selection, and um, the problem remains. But for humans and other complex organisms with fairly small population sizes, there's only so much selection you can apply because mm -hmm. natural selection involves the death of people. Well, you can't select away 99% of all the mutations because yeah. human females can't have that many children. You can take away maybe five or 10% of the population at most per generation or we go extinct. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, it's an evolutionary conundrum that, they have not answered. Yeah. They've tried. They've blustered their way through it. They've shouted. They've doing all sorts of things, but their their arguments have missed the target every time. Let's consider in just a moment here a few other objections. Okay. But okay. before that, if you're watching this video at home and you are enjoying what you're hearing or watching, I'd encourage you just to give us a thumbs up on the, our YouTube channel. Share this video content with others and make sure you check the show notes because there we have links to a whole bunch of articles that we've written, Rob. You've, you've contributed to a number of these on genetic entropy, explaining the basics of it, and then going into depth, answering some of the, the objections that skeptics have raised as well. Yeah, we've spent hours and hours and hours answering objections Yeah, in detail. Yeah. And uh, one other way that people can help, if you're listening by podcast, just the audio, you can, um, through your podcast app, whatever it is, give us a rating. That way, uh, more people will get to hear about this great content. Now, one of the objections, Rob, that I've come across is that people point this out, that they say, okay, if, if this genetic entropy is real, you say it's a, a big problem for human beings, but we have relatively long generation times. Bacteria reproduce a lot faster 
so we can observe in within one human lifetime, like lots of generations of bacteria, how come we don't see their genomes degrading? How come they're not already extinct if this phenomenon is real? Great question. We've been asked that before. I wrote an article probably mm, five or eight years ago, genetic entropy in simple organisms. And what I said was, no, genetic entropy really applies to humans and elephants and things like that. Bacteria, if there's one life form on Earth that can escape the effects of genetic entropy, it might be bacteria. Because huge population sizes, huge turnover. I mean, if E. coli, if they divide every 30 minutes, well, the E. coli population in the world is not increasing. That means that all the trillions and trillions of E. coli, they die every 30 minutes. Mm -hmm or that number die every 30 minutes. So you have huge populations, huge population turnover, less than one mutation per generation for bacteria. And this is a perfect recipe for very efficient natural selection. Okay. So if there's something there, it can see it, it can winnow it away, and these things might persist. Yeah. It's not true for people. Right. So we've never said that it applies across the board to every type of organism. It depends on the specifics, right? It does just, depend gotta, on specifics. Do the specifics. It, it might apply to bacteria, but it probably doesn't. It definitely mm -hmm. applies to more complicated, longer-lived species with uh, smaller population sizes. Yeah. And I know you've done some work as well on uh, the swine flu virus. Tell, yes. me, tell me about that. Okay, so this is actually smaller than a bacterium. But the human H1N1... In terms N1, of the genome, is that what you yeah, mean? Well, yeah, well, genome and, and the particle size too. Okay. Uh, the human H1N1 influenza virus that swept the world 1917-1918 went extinct in 2009. Mm -hmm. And the creationists noticed it. The evolutionists didn't. And we said, wait a second. This is when, uh, remember the swine flu epidemic that, that, that came through at that time? That was also an H1N1, but it was a pig version of H1N1, not the human version. Mm, okay. So what we did was, uh, John Sanford and I, we downloaded all of the influenza viruses that were available. And we're talking about sequences that go all the way back to 1918. Mm. So we had the second year of the pandemic, a woman had died in Alaska and they buried her in permafrost. Well, people said, wait a second, that means she's been frozen all these years. So they exhumed the body, they took mm -hmm. a tissue sample, and they sequenced the flu genome out of her. And comparing that to thousands of other sequences from historical samples and modern samples from modern sequencing machines, we were able to plot a beautiful straight line mutation accumulation mm -hmm. in, the, in the flu. And if you think about it, the flu is undergoing strong natural selection because only the ones that escape the human immune system are passed on. Okay. And the ones that, that reproduce the fastest are the ones that are passed on. The ones that reproduce the slowest, they lose to the evolutionary arms race in, within influenza. And yet, mutations accumulated, about 12% of that genome just randomly mutated, mm. and it died. And that's exactly a prediction. In fact, we had even written an, a, um, a mathematical paper several years prior to that using RNA viruses as an example and what we saw in real life exactly mirrored the mathematical projection that we had published beforehand. Yeah. So, so tell, tell me if I'm understanding this right. So okay. this is a rare case where you, you have enough data to go back that far yes. in this organism's history. So you yes. can actually check to see if the mutations have been accumulating in this organism over time. And they have been. And that seems to be what has driven it to extinction, consistent with this whole concept of genetic entropy. Yeah. Essentially, the genome randomized. And we just watched it. It got yeah. more and more random over time, and, and then it, it just couldn't, couldn't reproduce, and it couldn't compete with the swine version anymore. And that's a great point. This is the first time we had historical evidence of thousands upon thousands of generations. Mm. We don't have that for humans. Yeah. We have lots of modern DNA. We have some ancient DNA. But that's it. 
we don't have anything like that for elephants or horses or or birds because most of the genetic data is for humans. Yeah. So we can use mathematical models and experiments on real life things and then extrapolate, say, wait a second, if the human mutation rate is this and if our average generation time is this and if this many humans could be killed off for natural selection purposes, what rate would mutations accumulate and mm-hmm. how long would it take for us to go extinct? Well, the mutation rate is profound. It's like 100 per person per generation. Yeah. That's all people. You can't kill off enough people because everyone is mutant. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we will go extinct. Yeah. Guaranteed based on science. There's many other objections that people have raised, and we've addressed those yep. in various articles that we've written. I think maybe just to point out the implications for a biblical worldview, that this is consistent with what the Bible teaches, right? That yeah. God made a good world in the beginning, so he, he designed organisms, including human beings, with uh, the sophisticated ways that we are fit to be alive. <laughs> you know, Richard Dawkins once said there's there, there are many more ways to be dead than alive. <laughs> so if it was just nature alone, you know, trying to build up organisms over time um, by, by chance alone, that's not going to work. Um, and what genetic entropy shows is that natural selection can't uh, help to build up organisms over time. It can't yeah. even prevent the degradation. The fact that species have survived this many thousand years is amazing. Yeah. It is a testimony to the brilliant creator God his engineering, his foresight, the error checking, the information he put into living things is profound. So we are persisting over time. We will eventually go extinct. But yeah. that's not true because Jesus is going to come back before we're extinct right. according to the Bible. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not even worried about that. But one question we didn't answer yet is how long it's going to take. Mm. And I can't answer that because it's not the way it works. Yeah. Like take cheetahs out in the wild right now. There's maybe 10,000 or so cheetahs, mm-hmm. African in India, and all the ecologists are worried that they're going to go extinct because litter size is decreasing, birth defects are increasing. Cheetahs, are they're in trouble. There aren't enough of them. But what happens is that the fitness of that species is going to go down, 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 and then a new parasite will come through or a new, new climate regime or um, some competitor, and you're just going to... Whoosh, whoosh, yeah. So it like makes collapse. it weaker and weaker and weaker, but you don't know what's eventually going to come in and yeah. be the final, you know, death knell. Yeah, this. yeah. You don't know what the straw or when the straw that breaks the camel's back is going yeah. to occur. You just know your camel's overloaded. Yeah. But at the same time, I think you have said that this is a problem, not just for evolution, but it, it helps to show that humans can't have been around for the entire time that evolutionists believe that we have been. If our species can't persist for millions of years into the future, that means our species has not persisted from millions of years into the past. Just mathematically, scientifically, and everything we know about genetics and entropy, natural selection, tells us that species are not billions or millions of years old. Thousands, fine. So again, there it's the evidence that we have from genetic entropy. It's consistent with the Bible. It's consistent yeah. with creation in the relatively recent past, as we would you know believe based on the genealogies and scripture. And then it's consistent with what we know about the fall. The Bible says God cursed the ground because of Adam and Eve's sin. And so creation has been deteriorating. Romans 8 says that it's groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And yet, as you mentioned, someday Jesus is going to come back. And it's not as though we believe humanity is going to go extinct in the near future. God promises there's uh, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And in that new heavens and new earth, there'll still be a second law of thermodynamics Mm. because that's what produces friction. And that's what gives us to be able to think and speak and move. And yet, the power of Jesus Christ, the sustainer, is going to overcome the degradation effects of the second law. 
Again, if people want more information, they can check out the links in the show notes or just visit creation.com and search for genetic entropy or the many, many other uh, topics that we address there. And uh, we hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.